Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. It's Halloween, and this month, Massachusetts often gets a lot of tourist attention for its history of early New England witch trials. But did you know Connecticut was the site of the first witch hanging in the American colonies? Alex Young, Alice Young rather, a resident of Windsor, was accused and hanged in 1647. Coming up, we learn about efforts by descendants of those accused in our state to have Connecticut lawmakers exonerate the victims of the Connecticut witch trials. First, today is the last day of a week-long international effort to highlight the role of bats in nature and conservation efforts. Many species are in trouble due to white-nose syndrome. Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection says the fungal disease affects six out of nine bat species in our state. They also are impacted by the changing climate and the loss of insect food. Joining us now with more on Zoom, Devon Fraser, wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Now, do you see bats where you live? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Devon, welcome to our show. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. So we've heard that bats are in dire straits. They play a crucial role in ecosystems. Uh, Tell us more. Yeah, so um, both of those things are absolutely true. Our bats are very important. And we've seen um, the effects of white-nose syndrome has really raised alarms about the conservation status of bats and kind of galvanized a, a huge community of bat researchers and awareness around their plight. Um, So white-nose syndrome, as you mentioned, is this this disease caused by a fungal pathogen, and it's had devastating impacts on bats, both here in Connecticut and across North America. Uh, It's caused population declines upwards of 95% for some of our most common species, such as the little brown bat and the northern long-eared bat. Um, And even some of our species that are less impacted by white-nose syndrome, like the big brown bat, have experienced declines in excess of 35 to 40% in that same time frame. Um, so white nose affects bats primarily during hibernation and it interrupts their sleep or as we call it torpor in technical terms. Um, and this is causing them to try and seek food in the dead of winter when there's no insects active. So, um, basically bats are waking up too frequently from hibernation and are starving to death midwinter before they can get out and actually find food, um, to help offset, you know, some of the fat that they burn through during winter. Um, The disease can also cause a lot of damage to their wings and can lead to many secondary illnesses, and it's typically fatal for bats. So these dramatic population declines uh, have resulted in several species being added to both Connecticut's endangered species list. And one of these, the northern long-eared bat, has also been federally listed. And several of these additional species are under review for federal listing right now. And Devon, the, the bats that you mentioned, tell us more about the ones that are migratory and those who you know, may be here for the winter. 
Yeah, so we tend to break our nine species that we have here in Connecticut into two broad categories. We call them either tree bats or cave bats. And so these so-called tree bats, they tend to spend their summers either kind of solitary or in these really small groups. And they'll roost in the foliage and the bark of trees during the day. Um, they're also thought to migrate during the winter to warmer climates, although we do have some evidence that at least some of individuals might kind of stick around during the winter. I had a silver-haired bat that showed up in a woman's woodpile uh, in December of last year and then again in January. So he decided to stick around. Um, and so there's three species of tree bats here. We have the hoary bat, the eastern red, and the silver-haired bats. And then that other category, the cave bats, these are the, the so-called cave bats because they do hibernate in caves and mines during the winter. And these are the species that are severely affected by white nose and the majority of our bats here in Connecticut. So when we talk about white nose syndrome and the devastation, of course, uh, over the last decade, is there any good news in terms of how the species, the bat species, are potentially adapting uh, to this fungus? Yeah, so that's a really great question. There's so much work. And in fact, part of my last job that I had prior to joining uh, Connecticut Deep was to use genetics to look at whether or not bats seem to be evolving some level of resistance. And we do have some evidence to suggest that, that natural selection is doing its job and helping these bats evolve some level of resistance to the pathogen. However, bats are having to do this in the face of so many other threats. So we've got climate change and we've got, as you mentioned, habitat loss and kind of um, the loss of resources for them. So even if they're evolving resistance, they still have you know, several other conservation challenges that they have to contend with. And bats reproduce very slowly. So they kind of break all the rules of being small mammals. And each female only has typically one pup per year. Um, so any recovery, even in the presence of natural selection, is going to take a really long time for bats to recover from this. And so really, our efforts have to focus on facilitating that recovery while the underlying you know, genetics and natural selection hopefully continues to help populations of bats survive during the winter. You're hearing Devon Fraser here where we live, a wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Prote Protection. Over the last week, it's been Bat Week. It's an international effort to highlight the role of bats in nature as well as conservation efforts. If you have a question, if you see bats where you live, the number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so a lot of uh, challenges, as you've mentioned, Devon. But when we think about even pesticide use and, you know, the, the, the issues that bats are even encountering uh, with uh, their food sources. Devon, can you hear us? Oh, yeah. No, I lost you there for just a moment. Sorry. Can you repeat the question? Sure. When we think about pesticide use and the loss of food sources for bats, uh, can you talk about that challenge as well? Sure. So um, I get this question quite a lot. What are what are the role that, that bats play and why should we care about their conservation? Um, so the majority of our bats, so all of our bats here in Connecticut, and the majority of bats that occur in the United States are what we call insectivores. So they eat insects as their primary food source. Um, and bats are really the only animals that have figured out how to colonize the night skies, right? So birds kind of take care of insects during the day. Bats are doing the same thing, but for night flying insects, and a lot of night flying insects are um, also can be, you know, insect pests for crops. 
And so bats are really helping kind of facilitate insect control without the use of harmful chemical pesticides that simultaneously make our food more expensive because the, the farmers have to put more inputs into yielding more crops and also can make our food more um, or less healthy for us, I suppose. So bats are really helping us kind of provide natural pest control. Um, but the more pesticides we use, obviously that's limiting the resources for bats. So it's kind of this crazy interplay between our needs and bats needs, which, you know, should align, but um, because, because of this massive loss of bats due to white nose syndrome, I think a lot of uh, farmers are feeling that pressure. And so that might translate into higher food costs for us um, and, you know, continued threats to bats because they are consuming insects that have been perhaps doused with some pesticides. Uh, generally, do you think that people are, are fearful of bats? Uh, I know in the past uh, there has been a lot of uh, fear. If, if you see a bat, oh, gosh, uh, we got to worry about rabies. Uh, we know that um, that bats uh, harbor uh, many viruses that have um, some have spilled over to humans in African nations due to humans living too close to their habitats. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about that, Devon. Yeah, so bats definitely do have a bit of a bad rep in rap in terms of um, disease spillover. And that's certainly a, it's certainly a concern that the research community that works with bats takes seriously. Um, bats have a lot of unique elements to their life history. They can, they're the only mammals that can fly. And there's some reason to suggest that, that that ability and that metabolic cost associated with flight might make them really good at, at tolerating viral infections. And so we do see a lot of these um, potential spillover events into humans. Um, I would say what I try and remind people of is that pretty much every species on the planet to some degree is, is really stressed, right? Humans have a, a very huge impact on our natural environment and every species is kind of experiencing some level of stress. And I think in those situations, that kind of makes um, a good platform for viruses to take advantage of that stress and perhaps spill over into other conditions. So I think the more focus that we have on protecting native species or, or you know, species in their natural environment and making sure that they're less stressed will ultimately have benefits for humans as well. Um, but bats, you know, in terms of rabies, uh, prevalence in wild bats is far lower than is typically reported on public health uh, websites because there's kind of two different ways of measuring that. Um, there's a bias in the way that we get those statistics because bats that are coming in for testing um, may or may not be positive, but then we don't really know what the entire population of bats looks like. And so the best estimate we have is that less than 1% of bats are infected with rabies. Um, so they're not the, you know, they're not the big threat in terms, and, and bats are pretty solitary. They don't really want to have to interact with humans. Um, so they'll avoid us more than we'll avoid them. Uh, listeners may be wondering how they can help bats where they live. Uh, what are some uh, suggestions you have for them, Devon? Absolutely. So um, anything that really provides habitat for things that people may be more inspired to provide habitat for, such as our pollinators, our bees and whatnot, that's also providing habitat for nighttime pollinators, uh, which can be a palatable item for a lot of bat species. So creating natural habitat, limiting the use of pesticides, obviously. Um, putting up bat houses is a great option for people who want to attract bats to their property. I do always tell people not to get too discouraged if your bat house doesn't get colonized right away. It can take them quite a while before they, they find it or before they have a, a reason to find a new home. Uh, the thing about bats is they tend to be very... Um, 
faithful to their maternity colonies. So a location where the females get together year after year and have their babies and return year after year to the same site. Um, and so they don't often seek out alternative locations, but if they have to, if they were excluded from an area for some reason, then they might go and colonize another bat house. So having that option for them available is a really nice way to support bat populations. Great. Devon Fraser, again, is a wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Thank you, Devon, so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Coming up after the break, records show at least 11 people living in the Connecticut colony were accused of witchcraft and hanged. We learn about efforts by descendants of those accused in our state to have Connecticut lawmakers exonerate the victims of the Connecticut witch trials. You can join that conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The history of witch trials in New England attracts tourists mostly to Salem, Massachusetts this time of year. But did you know the first person hanged in the early days of the colonies was Alice Young of Windsor, Connecticut? She was sent to the gallows 45 years before the infamous Salem witch trials. Now, 375 years after Young's hanging, there's a growing movement to exonerate the people who were accused and hanged as witches in Connecticut. For more, joining us now on Zoom, Beth Caruso, who's a Connecticut resident and author. Her books include One of Windsor, The Untold Story of America's First Witch Hanging, and The Salty Rose, Alchemists, Witches, and a Tapper in New Amsterdam, both historical fiction. Beth, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And Sarah Jack is also with us. She's a Colorado resident with Connecticut Ties and the descendant of accused Connecticut witches. Both are founders, both Beth and Sarah, founders of the Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project. Sarah, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Now, our listeners can join as well if they have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Sarah, I'll start with you, because I understand that you got involved in this when you were trying to learn more about your heritage. So so tell us what you found. Um, Yes, I was doing some family research, and 
I found myself in a branch that went into the colony of Connecticut, and I saw that Winifred Benham was an accused witch. I was a little baffled. I did not realize there were accused witches outside of Salem at that time. And I do descend from two people who hanged in Salem. So that was a flag for me. I wanted more information. Mm. So tell us about Winifred. Uh, what, ha- what can you tell us about this particular uh, ancestor of yours? Yes, um, she was actually the daughter of an accused witch out of Boston. And she and her daughter were accused um, fortunately, they um, were cleared in 1697. However, they did leave the area due to the stigma and what they had gone through. Mm. So when you found that out, I mean, what was your reaction, Sarah? I was very happy that um, they survived. I was excited to know that there was more history for me to find out. And I just really wanted to know their stories. Mm. Uh, Beth Caruso, who's with us, uh, tell us how you and Sarah joined forces. Sarah and I met online. Um, She had gone to the site that I had started with Tony Grigo back in 2016 called CT Witch Memorial, which is a place where we share stories about Connecticut witch trial victims. And Sarah had found me on that site. So we had gotten to know each other. She started her own site shortly after that, combining um, all the alleged witch stories from Massachusetts and from Connecticut, as well as other places. And when you say that you found each other online, tell us about that online community and, you know, how you, Beth, have seen interest uh, in uh, this history grow? Well, when I first wrote and published One of Windsor in 2015, there weren't a lot of people who knew about the Connecticut witch trials, which was my motivation in writing about Alice Young. After the publication, a lot of descendants came and reached out to me And on top of that, when I was doing research, I realized that my husband and children are descended from Lydia Gilbert, Windsor's second witch trial victim. Um, So then it became more personal as well. Um, But after starting CT Witch Memorial, there were also a flood of descendants. We now have about 2,700 followers and many, many of them are descendants. They find out through Ancestry or other sites that they are connected to this history and they want to learn more. So um, Sarah, as well as Josh Hutchinson, Mary Bingham, um, Tony Grigo, who I mentioned were all the founders of um, this effort to exonerate Connecticut witch trial victims. We've found that, um, you know, they've started sites and it's, we're really trying to get the word out there. So social media is very important in this effort. 
You can join our conversation if you have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Beth Caruso mentioning uh, that uh, more and more uh, people are learning that they are descendants of those who were accused in the early American colonies. Luther's calling in from Glastonbury. Luther, what did you want to share? Sure. Uh, I just mentioned that I'm a descendant of one of the likely uh, perpetrators of these crimes. And I think it's important for us, too, to uh, exonerate these people. Mm. Uh, They were obviously innocent of a crime that didn't even exist. And uh, it's important we look at history and understand our ancestors weren't uh, all perfect. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, it's important for everybody. And I'd like to compliment Windsor for doing its part in exonerating uh, these people. I live in Glastonbury right now. And back in that day... Glastonbury was part of Weathersfield that did these things as well. So there's a, a large portion of Connecticut that is part of Hartford, Windsor, uh, Stratford, uh, New Haven, uh, that were actually uh, in, in different towns now. But they're part of this, too, and they ought to do their part in exonerating. Well, thank you, Luther, uh, for, for calling in. Uh, Beth, uh, Luther did a good job mentioning other areas of, of uh, the Connecticut colony where people were accused as witches, uh, some hanged, I believe. Um, were there 11 uh, people in the Connecticut colony that were hanged, mostly women, Beth? Yes, there were 11 people in total that we know of. Two of them were men. Those two men were married to um, fellow alleged witches, So we know a lot of this was misogyny. There were 35 indictments, 34 people indicted, one indicted twice. There was a 12th 12th woman, Elizabeth Seeger, who was convicted and reprieved when um, the alchemist governor at the time, John Winthrop Jr., refused to carry out her sentence. Uh, Luther also mentioned that Windsor uh, did right by clearing the names. Uh, so tell us what happened in 2017 uh, related to uh, two of the accused and that were hanged, Alice Young and Lydia Gilbert. Um, we brought a resolution before the town council in February of 2017. First Church in Windsor played a huge role in this. Um, and we testified before the town council We also had a descendant write a very, very moving email to the town council. And between all of that and just just talking about the real history and how these women, Alice Young and Lydia Gilbert, were not really witches, the town council was very moved. And so in a very uh, non-partisan way, they passed the resolution to clear their names nine to zero. Wow. So that must have been a moment for for you and others that were involved, uh, Beth. Uh, How did you feel? Um, It was a wonderful moment, but we knew that there were many others who were hanged unjustly Mm -hmm. and still a lot of people who didn't know about these witch trial victims. So, um, you know, we decided to continue on with the Facebook page, with the education. Um, and fortunately, we had the, we were able to meet Sarah and others who are very interested in this. 
You're hearing Beth Caruso here where we live, a Connecticut resident and author of several books, including one of Windsor, The Untold Story of America's First Witch Hanging. Uh, that was Alice Young uh, here in Windsor, Connecticut. Also with us, Sarah Jack, a Colorado resident with Connecticut ties to a descendant of uh, who was accused to being a Connecticut witch. You can join us if you have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Both Sarah and Beth are among the founders of the Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project. We're going to be hearing more about uh, what uh, potentially the Connecticut General Assembly could do uh, to help uh, with uh, this uh, movement, again, uh, from others asking for the state to exonerate those who were accused. Sarah, I wanted to go back to you because you're also the co-host of Thou Shalt Not Suffer, the Witch Trial podcast. So you've spent a lot of time not only researching your uh, family um, history, but also Connecticut's role in this early history. When we hear that when people were accused to be witches, what did that mean exactly? What can you tell us? Um, Yes. um, Those people were um, targeted due to negative things that were happening around them. Their neighbors and community members were looking to find a way to stop. Um, who was causing their misfortune. And um, in the midst of the very stressful survival that was happening, fearing um, the devil, fearing that someone could be using harmful witchcraft to cause the problems that really led to these um, uh it led it led to these trials and to the execution of innocent neighbors. Mm. Uh, Beth, did you want to add to that? Uh, when we think about uh, the, the standards of the time uh, back then, uh, strict Puritan standards and the way of life, you know how that uh, could you know work against some people who may have had stronger personalities, or as uh, Sarah had mentioned, if something was happening of great misfortune, you know the the way that people would uh, cast doubt and fears around about others around them. There's no doubt about it. As I said before, misogyny played a huge role, as did community panic and fear. And so women who were outside the Puritan role of a submissive, obedient woman, someone who was outspoken, maybe someone who was infertile um, or had few children, somebody who had a criminal history, women who owned land um, after their husband died, could all be viewed as threats um, and in competition with men. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Laura's calling actually from Birmingham, Alabama. Laura, welcome to the show. What did you want to share? Hello. How are you all? Um, I am a descendant of both Lydia Gilbert and Katherine Harrison, who was uh, convicted in, or in Wethersfield, Connecticut. And I've written a book about both of them that really lets you in on how it feels to be a woman at that time. It's called An Art, A Craft, A Mystery. And I just, my feeling is that these were not, these were innocent women who were, helped to found this country and yet carry the um, shame and stain of disgrace. And as a descendant, I would like 
these women that were accused in Connecticut to be celebrated because because of their work and their labor, people were able to survive. You know, without the work of the women living there, it would have been impossible for the early settlers to make it. And instead of demeaning them and disgracing them and letting letting their families carry this disgraceful stain, I feel like it is time for us to celebrate these women who made great sacrifice and went through great suffering and yet were just trying to keep their families and their neighbors alive. Laura, can I ask, and thank you uh, for that comment, when you mentioned that you're the descendant of two who were accused, uh, how did you find that out? Tell us a little bit about the the history that you uh, learned over the years. Well, I have, I'm married to a genealogist, and he had researched his family, so he started researching mine. And one day he came to tell me that my great-great-great-great-great Lydia Gilbert had been found guilty of witchcraft in Windsor in 1654. And he showed me an article written in the 70s um, in American Heritage Magazine. Now, there's only one little piece of information about Lydia Gilbert, and it is the outcome of her trial. And yet this man had written a 10-page article about how evil she was, yet no information, just all stereotype. And it just burned me up. And I started researching the life of Lydia Gilbert and what life was like for women in the colonies. It, the impression that we've been given in school of these very compliant women who deal with all the Puritan say is not really true. Women were active helpmates in families and in communities. They could not survive without both without the work of women. And... I did tons of research. I came and visited Windsor and Wethersfield. It was absolutely amazing to have that experience. And then I worked very hard to to do a lot of research before. It took me 14 years to get this book published. Um, And it was just published this year. And it's a novel, but it's written in poetry. And just for a tiny, itty-bitty little example of what the women's perspective was, I'm going to read you something very short. It's the title poem, An Art, A Craft, A Mystery. We kept the small alive from day to day, kept households warm, kept bread made. While men sat in the meeting house in ceaseless debate on sin, redemption, destiny, their, work came, their grace came through women's works, watching fires and keeping coals ablaze, their salvation through women's hands, gathering each day's yeasted scraps for tomorrow's meal, our sacred pact. Do not think these skills were simple. They were an art, a craft, a mystery. Yet when the men took notice, they questioned diligence and named it witchery. Laura, thank you so much, and and congratulations for getting that book published uh, this year. Our guests are still with us, Beth Caruso and Sarah Jack. Uh, Beth, I'll start with you. Did you want to respond to what Laura shared and as well as that excerpt that she read? I think what Laura's comments reflect on are that the stigma of a lot of these women have carried on. There have been arguments in the past of why should we exonerate these witch trial victims? 
you know, we're so far removed from it. Well, no, we're really not that far removed from it because the energy behind the accusations of witch trials is still among us. And a lot of the families who were tainted with the stigma, they still carry that with them. They carried it well into statehood. Um, and we know from the last 50 years of research about witch trials that these people were not witches. And, and by the way, being a witch in those days meant signing a pact with the devil to do evil to your community. So we know that's absolutely not true. We know it extended not just from colonial times, but into Connecticut statehood. Um, and for that reason, it, I think it's very important that we set the record straight, you know, correct the history, historical record. The state of Connecticut should definitely do that for these people. Sarah Jack, what's your take? Um, I agree with these ladies. I think things need to be right and names cleared. Um, there are several countries in our world where innocent people are being murdered for harmful witchcraft accusations today. And if state, um, if Connecticut, the state of Connecticut stands with Massachusetts and says this is wrong, our colonial witch trials were wrong, then we're advocating against the behavior and helping to build intolerance for witch hunts. Mm -hmm. Sarah, tell us more about that. You just mentioned modern day witch hunting. Uh, yes, there are many nations right now that um, their their communities and cultures are fearing um, harmful witchcraft and innocent neighbors and family members are murdered for causing misfortune. Uh, Beth Caruso, um, we hear that point that that this is some the practice that still happens in other places around the world. Is that also a part of this greater mission? When we think about this movement. Well, I think in the long run, yes, we can say, look, we understand that what happened 375 years ago was wrong. It was wrong then. And we can be a support to advocates in the countries that are trying to stop these witch trials. And, you know, some of these, these are mostly elderly women who are accused of being witches. They get sent to witch camps in, in certain areas. Um, some of them are murdered before they can even get to trial. Um, and there hasn't been a lot of emphasis about it. I think with more worldwide emphasis and attention to us acknowledging the wrongs from the past, that um, it can give them a boost. Um, it's very, it's tragic and heartbreaking to hear about what's going on now. Um, it, and it's already heartbreaking to think about what happened to families in the past, but to know that it's going on now and we haven't evolved beyond it, it is, it's just mind blowing and it's very sad. 
Uh, Sarah, we heard Laura from Birmingham say that she's married to a genealogist and that helped her uh, track down uh, this history. And I'm wondering if you can, and you'd mentioned that you, know, you also went down this path and, and learned about uh, being, uh, again, related to descendants, both uh, of those accused of being a witch in Connecticut and in Salem, Massachusetts. And so for, for listeners uh, who maybe are part of these older, older New England families who want to know more more. What would you tell them? Are you hearing from people online uh, that are interested in this history as well? Um, yes, you can. Um, if you go online, there are lots of social media, um, Facebook groups and pages and accounts. If you just do a search, even um, which trial descendant, it's going to lead you to historic historians who have given um talks on how you can do research for that. You're going to find family associations and historical societies that um, have historical research tips for you. You can find if that history is in your family. There are millions of people who descend from the Salem witch trials, whether they're an accuser or an accused. So many of us do have connections to these histories. Again, you're hearing Sarah Jack here, where we live, a Colorado resident with Connecticut ties, a descendant of an accused Connecticut witch. Beth Caruso is also with us, a Connecticut resident and author of One of Windsor, the Untold Story of America's First Witch Hanging. Uh, Beth, is are there plans to, to uh, make this movement even bigger? I understand there, are, there may be a foundation starting. Um, I'm going to let Sarah speak to that because she's more involved with that. Sarah? Sure. Yes. Um, Josh Hutchinson and I started the podcast, Thou Shalt Not Suffer, this early fall, um, end of summer. And through our episodes, doing our research, um, talking to experts, we have developed relationships. And that is opening doors where we can support um advocates in other parts of the world where witch hunting is happening. We want to um, continue to present clear truth of the witch trial histories and the behaviors. And that includes um, creating paths for justice, but also memorialization, like in Connecticut, and engaging education for schools and historical societies. So there's a lot on the horizon that can be done. We're going to keep talking about this after the, a short break, including efforts to have the Connecticut General Assembly pass an exoneration bill. Again, uh, descendants of those accused of being witches uh, more than 375 years ago. We'll talk more about that after a short break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I've been talking to the founders, uh, two of several of uh, who founded the Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project. The group includes descendants of accused witches in Connecticut who are pushing for exoneration 375 years later, hoping our state will follow other states in clearing their ancestors' names. They want legislators to amend a law to allow for posthumous pardons in Connecticut. For more on that, joining us on the phone is Representative Jane Garibay, who represents Windsor and Windsor Locks, who's also up for re-election against Republican Len Walker. Representative Garibay, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So how did you get involved with this exoneration effort? Um, an email. Um, I had known because of Beth Caruso, she's a constituent and lives in my town, and I followed the process of exoneration in Windsor, so I had that little bit of background, and when I got an email from the larger group and started hearing from people, um, I knew that this was important. Tell us more about why you think it's important. Of course, there are probably some listeners who are wondering, why, why does this matter now? How would you answer that? Why it matters now, I would ask, why hasn't this been taken care of years ago? Um, Because we know better, and now I feel it is its time, because with the attack on women's rights at the moment, I feel it ties into this, um, and that it just feels like now is the time for this to be taken care of, finally. So we heard from both uh, Beth and and Sarah that when we think about why people were accused of witchcraft uh, back in the early colonies, it wasn't because they were actually witches, but uh, because of what was happening in those particular communities. Maybe they didn't fit the standards uh, uh, that people were living and following at the time. And so when we think about exoneration, why this is important and the steps that Connecticut could take, Representative Garibay. Because it's important to um, many people. Um, I think we're in like ninth, ninth generation now. They lost everything. They lost their farms, their livelihood. Some lost their children. Um, and we know better now. So it is time to say we're sorry. It's that simple. And, you know, an apology. Is there a time limit on an apology? Whether something happened to me today if they get someone apologizes down the road, it, that apology is still needed. It, it brings closure. And so describe or explain this legislative uh, mechanism that's needed to exonerate right. those who are accused, Representative Garibay. Right. So right now, we do not have a legislative tool to exonerate someone who has passed. It's just not there. So what we have to do through our Judiciary Committee is create a tool um, that can do that. And it can't be a pardon either, because a pardon is something was done wrong and you're being pardoned for it. Um, An exoneration means this should not have happened, it was wrong, and we bring with it an apology. We know the state also has a board of pardons and paroles, but there's still no uh, exoneration process uh, that's posthumous. Right. There is not, not even for a pardon. Um, so we are hoping, we're working on language now um, of how that will look like, but it needs to be an exoneration with a, an, an apology. And we know that it was the Commonwealth at the time, not the state of Connecticut, but these were, we'll say, our brothers and our sisters, our people, and this happened here. 
So um, I think it would go a long way helping the families of those victims um, to heal. I understand other states like Virginia and Massachusetts and New Hampshire have exonerated uh, those who were as were accused to be witches. And so can you tell us, you know, will you be modeling that language for your potential bill based on what they've done? We will look at what everyone is doing. Um, I've been reading up on Scotland and some other countries, et cetera. Um, but it will be tailored, I'm sure, to Connecticut. It may not be exactly what the others have. Um, so, you know, we do know we want an exoneration. We want the people named in it with an apology. Those are the basic three. Uh, Representative Garibay mentioned Beth Caruso, who's her constituent and is also here with us. Uh, Beth, uh, tell us more about uh, how other states have responded uh, to uh, their descendants uh, calling for uh, the accused to be exonerated. They did name their victims, but it took five tries <laughs> since the early 1700s. We don't want that to happen this time. We want to name them all um, from the get-go. They have named those who were hanged, um, but they didn't name all those who were indicted. But uh, we also think it's important to recognize those who were indicted um, who may have fled and lost everything that way. You know, the first accused in Connecticut and then indicted were also convicted, seven for seven. And so there were a lot of people who fled the colony because they saw the writing on the wall, basically. Mm -hmm. um, there probably would have been a lot more people that had hanged if they hadn't fled. Um, so, uh, it would be nice to have some recognition of that as well. Um, in Virginia and New Hampshire, they were uh, individual. Uh, it was an individual town. Um, the woman in Virginia, it was the governor who wrote a declaration of her innocence. In Scotland, they hanged almost 3,000 witches. So they're working on exoneration there now and there was an apology for all of those hang for all of those deaths i should say i know there were some um burnings as well um from the prime minister she has given an apology so um our group we have given histories of what other places have done and we have also passed on what our desired wording would be, but it's really up to the legislature now to work within, you know, what they think is best. But we have had our say, and I have to say, I'm, you know, very grateful for Representative Garibay. She has really um, gone, you know, gone through this with us so far and guided us and, um, you know, and she's made us do our homework too. <laughs> she, uh, you know, she's asked very thoughtful questions um, and had us do the homework and, and we've brought it back to her because we want to really have a successful effort this time. There was an effort in 2008 and 2009 and we wanted to look at you know, why those efforts maybe 
didn't work so well at the time and what we can do to strengthen efforts now. So through her, you know, thoughtful questioning, we were able to really think about that more. And when you say Mm -hmm. there were efforts, there were um, bills before the General Assembly, uh, again, a group of descendants went before the General Assembly actually to ask for exoneration bills that ultimately failed. Uh, Representative Garibay, we just have a few minutes left. When you hear uh, from descendants and you learn of of the relatives who were accused, can you talk a little bit about even the generational trauma they have endured when they learn about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it does pass down through generations, and you may not even know why you feel the way you do. Um, so I think that's really um, an important point. It affects your life forever. Um, you're, you're, again, you've lost everything. Some lost their children that were given to neighboring farms to do slave labor. Um, so all that, it does pass down, I believe, in generational trauma. Um, and it stays with you. And I think that's why an apology and um, to do this is so important because I hope it bring, brings some closure to the hurt that these families have felt. So with us, um, and oh, I'm sorry, Representative Garibay, still with us is yes, Sarah Jack, who's a Colorado resident uh, with Connecticut ties, yeah. a descendant of a, a person who was accused to be a, a Connecticut witch, also descendant of of those uh, accused in Salem. Sarah, what do you think of Representative Garibay's point here on generational trauma? Oh, I I agree that many researchers, they don't understand why they're um, feeling the way they do. A lot of times you'll hear descendants say, man, when I, when I saw the history and found out what happened to my grandmother or my grandfather, everyone in the family said, well, that makes sense. Or Oh, Mm -hmm. so that's it, you know, so there is this piece that is unsolved in these family histories and the answers in these histories. Mm -hmm. I want to thank Sarah Jack for coming on. She also is co-host of Thou Shalt Not Suffer, the Witch Trial podcast. Sarah, thank you for your time today. Yes, thank you for your time. And I want to thank Jane Garibay for helping us find a route to exoneration Mm -hmm. in her efforts. And that's Representative Jane Garibay, who represents Windsor and Windsor Locks, also up for re-election against Republican Len Walker. Representative Garibay, thank you. We'll be looking to see what happens with this potential bill next session. I'm looking forward to it also. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And thank you to this wonderful group um, working with me and doing all the work and helping so much. And Beth Caruso, a Connecticut resident and author of One of Windsor, The Untold Story of America's First Witch Hanging. It's a great read. We had Beth on just a few years ago when that book came out. Beth, thank you for your time on the show. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.